open the Bibles to Hebrews 12 if you're looking at Revelation chapter 12. It's slightly different. But Hebrews chapter 12, I will get there soon. Here we are. Uh, And verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Okay, so as I say, as we entered chapter 12, we got this big picture this great picture of the life follow, of life following Jesus, this sense of therefore, therefore why, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, since we see all these people who've gone before, since we see what Jesus has done for us, since we see the big picture of what God is doing, since we see his great plan of salvation, since we see it all, therefore, let's throw off everything that hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles, let's run the race with perseverance and doing what fixing our eyes on Jesus it's a great picture of what it is to follow him running a race persevering but all the while seeing this is where our hope comes from this is where salvation comes from this is where any hope of anything comes from it's Jesus that wonderful sense that we already heard prayed out from Susie and from Chris earlier that sense he's done it He's done it. He's made the way. I don't understand why you ever did, Jesus, but you've come. You've done it. So therefore, I'm going to fix my eyes on you and run after you. This great hope because of a great saviour. In a sense, as he's uh, told us through the letter, we're not those who shrink back. But in Christ, we are those who who have faith and are saved. And so we have this call to run with perseverance. Uh, The sense that we do have a race to run, a life to live, uh, a life following our Lord, a life growing in holiness, becoming more like him, going after him. Our own race, and we've seen that before, that, that there's a sense that it's not a race where we're competing with one another. We're not, it's not that, well, we've all got a race and one of us is going to win the prize one day. No, we all have our own race to run. We're not competing, but nevertheless, we don't race alone. See, this is a message that is so clear throughout the New Testament. In fact, throughout the Bible. God's building a people together. God's calling a family together. God's not calling individual believers who run in isolation in different places. Well, I'm going to run really well on my own. He's calling a people together. And the writer draws our attention to this through these verses. We see we're 
encouraged to strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees and make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. There's no sense of it's just, well, you strengthen your knees and you strengthen your feeble arms and you run on your own. It's like, no, there's, there's, there's a path that we're running on. There's, 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 there's help for one another in this. So that all those who are struggling... Those who, are, those who are finding it tough, that they may be strengthened, that they may not be disabled, but rather healed. As he goes on, make every effort to live in peace with one another, with everyone, and to be holy. See to it that no one falls short of the glory of God, of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. There's this whole sense, we're not just running on our own. We've been encouraged to run the race, but we're shown we're in this together. We're in this together. There's no competition, but there is a camaraderie. There is a group dynamic to this. There is a, this is a collective message. We're all going together. Because we are built together as a people and a family for God. So, from, from this, we're going to look at three things about our race together as a people. There'll be three points, and there'll be three pictures. They will be on the screen. Not yet. So, first thing, we're called to encourage and help one another. So, as we've been saying, previously we've been encouraged to throw off everything that hinders. He returns to a a similar theme here. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. It's that whole sense of, in your race, make every effort to do everything that will help you. You don't go around carrying on, keeping hold of these heavy weights and burdens and, and don't get trapped up in sin that's just going to make it hard to run. Well, he looks at that again. Make the path smooth. Strengthen your arms and legs that you may be able to run well. But in doing so, he, he kind of brings together two Old Testament quotes and pictures. Strengthening weak, uh, your feeble arms and weak knees. The original readers would have been transported back to Isaiah chapter 35. And Isaiah talking to the, uh, those in exile, those whose hope may have been dwindling tells them this in Isaiah 35 and verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. And he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. There's this sense of strengthen one another. Encourage one another. Because what? Because God brings salvation. For those in exile, there was that context of God's going to come and bring us back one day. God's going to come. Ultimately, God's going to come and bring his salvation through Jesus. And the wonderful truth for us is we can be strengthened again and say, yes, strengthen our feeble arm. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Why? Because Jesus has come. And Jesus does bring salvation. And there is hope. There is massive hope. So don't be discouraged. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. But again, this massive sense of 
This is corporate. This is us together. And he couples that with uh, going on to say, uh, make level paths for your feet. Alludes to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26, which we won't turn to specifically now. But it has that kind of sense in this context of smooth the path. Smooth the way. Don't kind of deliberately make it difficult. Don't kind of do nothing to help. Smooth the way for those who may be struggling, that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So as we look at it, we see... Yes, he's returned to this sense. Throw off everything that hinders. Don't be held back by anything. Don't make it difficult. But that's for you together. It's not just you on your own saying, well, I'm going to throw off everything that hinders me and I'll be fine, thank you very much. No, we're we're a people together. There's a real sense of togetherness and of wisdom and of care. There's no sense of just focusing only on your own race. But we're a family together. And there's great comfort and encouragement in that. Uh, Sam, maybe you could put up the first picture. It's a bit like running a race, a physical race. There's a couple of pictures there. It's interesting, we can think of running a race as all about just, I'm going to get to the finish. I'm going to get there. I'm going to be, that's all I'm fixing. And we can get that impression. We say, well, we're fixing our eyes on the prize. Well, yes. But actually, there's a corporate nature to it, a bit like these runners there, up at the top. There's some, there's some in wheelchairs. There's some who are pushing people in wheelchairs. There's some who are encouraging those who are pushing the people in the wheelchairs. They're all in a group together. I'm kind of reading a bit more into it. But there's a group going together. We're going to get to the end. We're going to get to the finish. And that, that whole sense of that picture comes from reading the story of those two men down at the bottom. It's, a, I think, a story that comes from the London Marathon last year. And those two men are Matthew Rees and David Wyeth. And Matthew Rees came round the final corner and saw this runner struggling. His legs were collapsing beneath him. Every time he tried to get up, he kept on falling back to the ground. And so Matthew Rees's first instinct was to go over to him and say, come on, you can do this, He's encouraging him. Come on, we can do this, you can do this. And tried to cheer him up and help him to his feet. But every time he tried to get up, I realized he wasn't going to make it. So then instead of continuing with his own run, Mr. Reese helped his fellow racer to his feet and walked with him to the finish. Saying this, come on, we can do this. We'll do it together. We'll cross the line together. We'll cross the line together. And that picture of of people physically running together encompasses something of what the author is saying here. We're not just individuals competing to go to the line ourselves. I've got to finish fast. I'm ignoring everyone around me. No, we're we're a group together. We're a family together, helping one another. And it expresses what is a familiar theme for the author through the letter to the Hebrews in different points. Back in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. In verse 12, he's been talking, uh, he's talking about going after God. He's talking about the same subject, about running the race. 
But he says in verse 12 of chapter 3, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another daily. Encourage one another. No sense of, well, they don't look like they're doing very well. They kind of need to buck up their ideas, don't they? But I'll just carry on. Encourage one another daily. And on on through the letter and into chapter 10 and verse 24, he returns to that kind of sense. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but again, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer is so, so convinced of this. We're to run the race with perseverance, but that all may run together. That we may encourage each other to run after our Saviour. In fact, this, this is something that's so clear through the New Testament. Even in looking at the amount of times that we see, if, if you do a search on it, the amount of times we see statements that have that phrase, one another. Most commonly we see again and again and again, love one another, love one another, love one another. You're the people of God, love one another. Be, be united in love, encourage one another is there so many times. Be devoted to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another. Carry one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Again and again throughout Scripture, it's building this clear picture. We're not on our own. We're not meant to be on our own, running in isolation. But we're built in as a people together, encouraging. Almost like we'll have been in the, in the run this morning. People Many cheering on, encouraging, you can do this, you can run. But, but even as we run together, we're encouraging one another. Our author's describing a people who stand with one another, particularly in the hard times of the race. This wonderful picture of strengthening weak needs and feeble arms and almost a sense of bandaging up wounds. It's a wonderful sense, stand with one another and pray with one another. A sense of grieving with one another, as well as rejoicing with one another. Of course, offering prayer and encouragement, but also practical help in times of need. It's the kind of picture we see in Acts chapter 2. Just as a snapshot, as we look in, of the believers having everything in common. Of meeting together and praying with one another. And also, at time to time, people selling things and giving things and, and supporting everyone. Seeing Actually, we're in this together. We're a people together. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11, it says this. Again, on a similar subject. Again, it, it talks about encouraging one another. But in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11, it says, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up. And then he says this, just as in fact you are doing. The wonderful sense for Paul was, I know this is what you, you are as a people. And actually in, in that sense, in so many ways, I look out and go, this is what we are as a people and this is what we do. 
It's wonderful to see in so many ways people standing with one another and helping one another and seeing it. If you're, if you're new to us, this is, this is what we want to be and long to be as a people together. A people who support and love and care for each other. And we see that in so many different ways, whether it's visiting people in hospital or praying with people or, or, or providing meals in certain situations or all sorts of other things. So I would encourage us, like Paul encourages the Thessalonians, let's encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact we are doing. Let's keep going with it. Because it's so, it's so wonderfully important, as the writer points out, we are not on our own. That's his encouragement. And in fact, in the midst of that, to resist the lie that says, I am all alone. No one else is facing this or has ever faced anything like this. No one really cares. No one will really understand. But actually to recognize, no, we are part of a body together. And to be those who do truly understand and care for one another. Because we are loved by a heavenly father and a saviour who understands completely. As the writer has already told us, he isn't one who can't sympathise with our weaknesses, but he went through it all. He knows. He knows. But also we are surrounded by a family who stand with us and love us. To race, we run together, encouraging one another to run well, strengthening weak knees and feeble arms, smoothing out the path, helping one another. But also, secondly, we see we're called to challenge and to sharpen one another. As we go on in, in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 12, we see this. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, if we read those verses, this isn't a crunching gear change. It's part of the same encouragement and exhortation. We're a people running together. We're a people strengthening and loving and encouraging one another. Again, as you look through the, the New Testament, we'll see lots of times love one another, encourage one another, build one another up, but almost in the same breath or in, in the same sense, admonish one another, instruct one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. There's a sense that this is all included. Here we see make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, or it could be rendered... Make every effort to pursue peace and holiness. This is, this is what we're going after. This is what the grace of God in us is calling us to. We're running after our saviour. We want to be more like him. Therefore, pursue peace and holiness. And it goes on, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. The author encourages us that our desire is to be that we're all growing in holiness and in peace with one another and, and in becoming more like Jesus together. In that sense, not merely that we're just all happy. Our goal in that sense is not purely that we make each other happy, but that we're pursuing holiness together, that we're pursuing peace with one another. That's the reminder that we're running together after him. 
And the encouragement here is to deal with sin and don't let it go unchecked. And in, and in him encouraging that, he's not enforcing the rules or laying down the law. This is what needs to happen. These are the things that are wrong, don't do them. But he's bringing a sense, this is out of our love and care for one another. This is out of our, our desire that we're all moving closer to being like Jesus. We're all growing in holiness and pursuing peace. Our desire to run well together is let's deal with the things that just aren't right. Don't let them grow and develop. In a sense, make sure... See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Almost in in reading that, in that sense, let's not ever use grace as an excuse. Of course, we fall and we we fall back to the grace of God. We come back and we live out of his grace. But we don't say, well, there's grace. Therefore, nothing matters. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want because there's grace. It doesn't matter if I can sing that over there because there's grace. Of course, there is grace. Of course there is grace. We come back and we say, Lord, it's only because of you that I can stand. But as, Tim, as, as Paul encouraged Titus in Titus chapter 2, grace is not, a sense, it's not to be used as a sense of, well, therefore nothing ever matters then. It doesn't matter, but, but actually this is what the grace of God does in us. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. As Paul says to Titus, no grace, it's not an excuse to sin. It's not licensed to sin, but grace says our sin has been dealt with. It's been taken away, as we've already heard again this, this morning. But then, as we go on, grace is teaching us and encouraging us and leading us on to be able to say no to ungodliness. And so, therefore, in that context, in the context of strengthening and making the path smooth and encouraging one another to be able to run, let's pursue peace and holiness together. And in that context, let's see his urgency. Make every effort. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And he puts it in a picture. And I've got a picture. He talks about a bitter root growing up. That's a weed. I'm not entirely sure, because you kind of look... And then you look for a picture of something and you think you've got a picture of what you think you're looking for. But I, Google tells me that's a picture of some Japanese knotweed. Now, some people will be going, Japanese knotweed. It's, a, it, it's kind of become a kind of scary plant or a scary weed. It can do damage to anything. It can go everywhere. Tiny little bit of it and suddenly, soon it will be everywhere. Eating through brickwork and concrete paving and everything. Anyway, that's the picture. He talks about, he talks about it here. See, that, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. As he says that, he's, again, he, their minds will be taken back 
I imagine, to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Taken back, I think, all these Hebrews who'd come out of, of the law and of hearing uh, the Old Testament law and being very well acquainted with it and understanding this is what was said back there in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. She's just on the other page. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. This whole sense of something growing up and causing real trouble. This sense, what's the context there? Talking about people turning away to serve other gods, of going away and committing idolatry, of, of basically of sin creeping in and kind of being tolerated. And it's there and it's just there. It's, it's probably it's okay. It's not too bad. It's just kind of rumbling on in the background. Kind of like you could... See, with some Japanese knotweed, you've cut down, maybe you've kind of cut down what you think is the problem, this shoot that's there. But actually, the problem with Japanese knotweed is that you don't see it, and it's kind of rumbling away under the surface, and actually, before you know it, come next summer, actually, it's kind of half a mile away and springing up, maybe not half a mile away, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not there on the botany of it or whatever else, but anyway, but it spreads like crazy. And you don't see it, and then suddenly, actually, there's a bitter root that springs up to defile many. And it, so the author's encouragement is, his exhortation is, don't let this happen. Deal with it, dig it out. Don't just kind of chop it back and think, hey, it's not really too bad, this is okay. He's challenging us to see the importance of dealing with things of dealing with sin, of being ruthless with sin, but of, of nipping things in the bud as well. The encouragement is not to think in our own lives, well, it's not really too big a problem, actually. I think I can kind of manage it. I'll just keep cutting it back. No, but to dig it out, deal with it, get it done, get rid of it, flee from sin. But also in, in those around us to think, not to think, well, that doesn't look quite right, but that's their problem. I'm okay, I'll keep going. Or even to think, it's not my place to say anything. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't an invitation for everyone to go in heavy-handed, dictatorial modes of, I think this is really bad. You should change what you're doing. But it's, a, it's an encouragement. We're all together. Our desire is not to tell one another off, but neither is it to let one another be stuck in a trap or to be stuck in things that really aren't good for them and aren't good for us as a church. Actually, our care for one another brings us to bring challenge and an exhortation. At the same time, it's encouraging each other to press on in following Jesus. As his picture it can kind of spread without us knowing and then, ooh, what's happened? Where did that come from? Encourage one another. Challenge where necessary. Pray for one another. Get alongside one another because we're all running together and it, it, he, he, he exhorts us to pursue peace with everyone. 
in this context of bitter roots springing up. So key, our relationships with one another. Such an area where something can get in, uh, something can take root. And we think it's kind of under control, but it's just bubbling away. It comes to a point where forgiveness, forgiving one another is such an important thing. Such an encouragement that we're given throughout Scripture. Don't let a bitter root take hold, which, in that sense, does show itself in bitterness or in unforgiveness. Perhaps fueled by pain of a particular situation, something from the past, or, or something, actually, you did this. I've never said, but it's just always kind of lived with me. Don't let it live with you. But let's be humble in coming to repentance. Humble in forgiving. So we can encourage and help one another. So that we can all run together. A family who love one another and want to see us becoming more like Jesus. So we encourage and we help, we challenge and we sharpen. Or in that sense, we run together, we dig out the weeds. But then we hit verse 16, and we're reminded very clearly that, as many commentators and others would put, this is, the, this is also the final of the warning passages of Hebrews. And we read in verse 16, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Come to another quite stark warning. But we've seen throughout, if we've been here, the writer has appealed repeatedly with these kind of stark warnings, appealing repeatedly out of a heart that no one would be lost. Out of a heart that people who are not yet saved would come to repentance, would come to a knowledge of Christ. That people wouldn't just be tagging along, but ultimately ready to drift away. But actually, the third point is that he's encouraging all to be runners in the race. And that we should encourage all to be runners in the race. Because he's in, through the passage, he's been encouraging us to help one another as we run, to challenge one another as we, as we struggle. But also his great desire is that we're encouraging many to join in the race. His repeated cry through his letter, punctuated throughout, is there are many who, who may be around, who have come in and are in and about, but actually my desire is that they're all following Jesus that are all saved by his grace, that they're all running the race together, not just hearing the truth, but believing it and running along with you. So he brings this exhortation here. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. And we see Esau here used as a picture of one who is godless. One whose eyes are fixed not on Jesus, but on something else entirely. 
In that sense, he's not used as a picture of one who slips up and stumbles into something, but one who is completely fixed on something else. And our author's desire as he brings this point is to see people saved and added. To see people added into this race, running together towards the prize. He mentions specifically sexual immorality. It's a big subject in scripture. And he mentions it here, directly. If we look around scripture, we see again and again, it's repeated, flee from it. Flee from it. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, we get this. 1 Corinthians 6, One Corinthians six. Perhaps if you turn to the right book. One Corinthians six and verse eighteen. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Sorry, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. You see, in the author in bringing it up here, there's that sense of, look, remember, you are his. You've been bought with a price. So therefore, that's why sexual immorality is such a, an obvious example to go to. Of, look, this is just completely against, completely opposite. Your bodies are the Lord's. Don't do something completely completely wrong with them. In different passages in Colossians 3, we see amongst a list of other things, actually at the end of the day, sexual, idolatry, sexual immorality and all these other things, it's idolatry. It's fixing our eyes on something other than our, our, our saviour. And so we see the relevance here. It's totally opposed to fixing our eyes on Jesus. We are his. Our bodies are his. They belong to him. And so the message is flee from sexual immorality. But also in this area or any other, don't think it's no big deal. It's no big thing. Come, receive the grace of God. But let's flee from sin in every different way. Don't ever think that it just doesn't matter. And it's, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? You see, in bringing this up, often the church and the Bible are seen somehow as anti-sex. That's, that's really what this is all about, isn't it? You just don't want people to have sex. Well, actually, the Bible's not anti-sex at all. It's very pro-sex, but in the right context. In the Bible, sex is a wonderful demonstration of the love between a man and his wife. An example of two becoming one flesh. That whole relationship being seen as a a picture of the intimacy between Christ and the church. That's the picture. That's the image. That's That's what God thinks of sex. It's a wonderful thing created by him and valued highly. So therefore it's not casual. It's not just something for our own pleasure in whatever way we feel like it. 
whether that be in one-night stands or casual relationships or even something as destructive as adultery. Things that bring an, an, an ugly distortion to what God has created. So in isolation, there's a call here to love and value this union that God has created, not to devalue or pollute it. But the focus here is not just on flee from sexual immorality, but see to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. His focus is on Esau, and Esau is a picture of something much bigger. And so the third picture, Sam is a bowl of stew. You see, that's what we're drawn to see of Esau. See to it that no one's sexually immoral... I'm really struggling with that word. Sexually immoral, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. See, we're drawn to the story in Genesis 25, which we'll look at in a moment, but we're drawn to this really stark contrast. Hebrews 12, verse 2, Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're shown Jesus. Fix your eyes on him who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus, who endured the cross, for the joy that was ahead. Then we're shown Esau in contrast, who in his present pain chose the stew instead. We've been encouraged. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on him and see he's the one who endured so much for the joy set before him. Then we're shown Esau and we're, we're drawn to this story in Genesis 25. Esau is described as godless, and then we're shown this story in Genesis 25 and verse 29. Of course, Esau had a brother, Jacob. They were both sons of Isaac. And we read, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Incidentally, that's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear it to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. See, we see this story. Esau wants Jacob's stew and is so preoccupied with his hunger, so preoccupied with the immediate situation that he's in, that he gives up his birthright. Now, someone pointed out, at 9.30, he gave up his birthright for some lentil stew. Fixing in very closely on the lentil stew. Anyway, I don't think that's massively relevant, but 
It adds, certainly in that person's head, it adds to the sense of, what value was this? What was it worth? This one bowl of stew, lentil stew. But Esau so wants it that he he is willing to give up his birthright for it. You see this stark contrast, Jesus, for the joy set before him, he didn't enjoy, just endure hunger after a day's hunting, he endured the cross in order, to, in order to go after this joy that was set before him, this salvation for many. This stark contrast, Esau valued his birthright so little that he felt it worth giving it up to get a bowl of lentil stew. In the moment, his thoughts turned in only to his stomach and his immediate needs and desires. You see, the picture is of someone who just does not see the value of the price. Just doesn't see, can't see the joy that is set before. It's someone who completely is not running the race. So actually, we can take the exhortation in and of itself. Don't turn away for anything. Nothing is worth more than the joy that's set before us. Our Saviour and all he has earned for us, the glorious truth that he has won and he has done it and in him we are saved. Nothing is worth more than that. Anything else is just like Esau's bowl of stew. Attractive perhaps, particularly to a hungry hunter, but ultimately gone in a moment and of no lasting value. But the picture of Esau is not of one who tripped up and got it wrong in a moment. Someone who, you see, we could, we could read it that way and, and fear would creep in. That, well, maybe in a weak moment, I might choose something as, as trivial as some stew instead of making a choice to follow God in that moment. Well, what happens to me then? You see, that's not the picture that the, the author is drawing. Of course, we're encouraged always fix our eyes on Jesus. But the picture of Esau is of one who, despite appearance, he was Isaac's firstborn. Despite appearance, despite the fact he was in and around the family, he was there. He surely is, he's the one, he's the one who's going to inherit. He's the one, shows himself to be completely outside the promises. No, I just, I just don't get it. I don't value it. I don't see it. The picture is of one who's not saved. Like those in the earlier warnings who reject the truth, who may appear to have been running for a while, but in the end show that they were never truly brought in. They never truly believed. And that's the author's cry and his hope. See to it that no one's like Esau. See to it that no one's like Esau because all are brought to saving knowledge of Christ. All are brought to to know the value and wonder of the joy set before us. So my cry today is to those who perhaps even in this room, you don't yet know Jesus. You may have been coming along. You may have been in and around. You may have heard the truth. You may have seen it. You may look at other people and think they've got something. But I'll just keep coming and seeing what's going on. My cry to you would be, come to Jesus. 
Come to him. He has done it, as we've heard today. He has paid the price so that we can run after him. And you can join in that race today to be saved, to know deep down, I know who I belong to. I know who has made a way for me. I know who has saved me. And for all of us, the encouragement is, let's live out our salvation together. Live out our salvation together as we go, encouraging one another, challenging one another, running together. Because we are a people running together. A people who love one another and want the best for one another. All that God has for us. So therefore, we are those who care for one another and look after each other. Strengthening weak knees and feeble arms. Helping those who are weary. Encouraging those who are discouraged. Seeing today that there is great compassion and encouragement that comes from God. So I encourage us, let's be those who continue to pray for one another, to stand with one another and encourage one one another as we run this race together. Amen. Amen.